NG Camus interview aims to inspire, motivate the youth of today for the days of tomorrow. We're back. 2020, can you believe it's 2020? A very happy new year to all parents and uh, children um, out there listening. Wish you all the very best for the new year and obviously wish you all the very best in the exams that are coming up in May. Not too long now. Um, I'm delighted to get the ball rolling with Educamus interview. With first and foremost, proud to say two friends of mine, first and foremost. We've, we've grown into to good friends from when we first met. Um, but also um, social campaigners, campaigners for justice and the founders of TIE, um, Time for Inclusive Education, who in 2018 um, managed to push for the introduction of LGBT inclusive education in all Scottish schools which is a monumental achievement, something which I'm both be proud of. So we're here with Liam Stevenson. Hello. And Jordan Daly. Hello. Um, so, yeah, as I say, first and foremost, delighted to call you my friends now as well, because you, you helped out the first day we met was when you were in... How, how long did you work with Cumbernauld Against Poverty? We were... Are you still involved? Yeah, it's still... It's kind of not not doing much. We're all busy. We're all busy doing our own things. Obviously, Ty kind of consumed my whole life. Um... Mick Crowley, who was who was involved as well, was as busy. He's had a new baby and stuff, so everyone's really busy. It's still something that we hope to return to. Um, to continue raising money for for good causes and food banks and uh, you know kind of refugees that arrive here. Um, we were really keen to get back doing that again, and hopefully in the near future, um, if, if our circumstances change with regards to not having to do Thai in their school interventions as the American University likes to call it, yeah. um, in our days off work, then hopefully we can get back to doing some more stuff with Coming Against Poverty, because in a very short period of time, we, we raised a lot of money for the local food bank, and we also um, were able to get lots of food from some of the, the Game Brigade collections at Celtic Park. So we managed to, to be a wee help to them up there uh, at the Coming Food Bank, and we hope to be doing that again, hopefully quite soon. Because yeah, you, you brought me a lot of stuff that day, for our, me, and my, me and my friends trip to the jungle in Cali. Yeah, we brought me a load of toiletries. If I remember right, it was yep. about 100 quid we, we had at the bank, the, the cap bank, and we bought on as a smart price shovel job. Yes, right. <laughs> so did I. I think I, I was pilfered off you in about 35 seconds. <laughs> it was. I think the day we met you as well was the day that we first met uh, Rosa Zambinini, who at the time was a uh, SNP councillor, and Rosa's someone as well who's become um, quite a good friend of ours and has been um, very involved in supporting us and uh, assisting us as Ty was progressing as well, kind of from 2015 through 2018. Um, Rosie's been a brilliant help. So it's funny how these um, kind of little interactions mm -hmm. always come yep. in a full circle in the end. Yeah, I've, I've said for the duration of my short stint in politics since, since 2014 in the independence referendum that it, it's very clear that good people and good energy uh, attract each other because it's funny how you make these wee connections whether it's through the independence referendum whether it's trying to do well for people who are stuck in refugee camps and yet you, you make these wee connections and they kind of spiral and they transpire into other things and, and you end up finding that you, you meet people um, and you end up stuck to, <laughs> stuck to them yeah. for quite a long time so I, I'm, it's been an interesting experience for me because I do find that you do gravitate good people gravitate towards one another and yeah. it's, 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 a nice, it's nice to think that that's happening all over the world actually because I think quite often you can look at the the international and the geopolitical picture and could be quite depressed but when you can you can rest assured I think that good people are, are gravitating towards each other all over the world hopefully yep vibrations good, good vibrations good energy I'm reading beach boys, <laughs> well uh, I'm reading John Didion just now so I fell into that wormhole uh, I'm reading the White Album which came out in 1979 and she's writing about the 
kind of turbulence of the 1960s and the peace love revolution and the end of the kind of hippie subculture and um, I'm a part of the book where she's talking exactly about what you've just described about kind of the belief that there's vibrations around this man and it's groovy and there's good energy and I, there's, I mean there's probably something but, in but that. But that, that that's actually kind of an interesting question but with regards to <clears throat> what's going on in the world right because I, I read I think it was last year Pinker's book The Case for Enlightenment Rationality Humanity and Progress which basically just says that Listen, I know there's a lot of doom and gloom, but we're, you know, progressing. You know, we're always progressing. Everything's getting better, not worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you, it's a mixture of, you know, disease being eradicated and it's all sorts of different charts to back up the different points that he makes. But obviously if you turn on the news and, you're, you know, we're looking at a Greta Thunberg book, which is next to my desk, global warming, things like the Iran crisis... Um, countless other things. Do you think the world? And this is a this is a big question. Is the world getting better, or is the world uh, in danger? I think Both. it depends where you are. Both. Actually, yeah. I think it Both. depends where you are in the world. Um, when we go over to America, um, because we've got the, the partnership with Purdue University in Indiana, the students and the professors we speak to over there, they think that Scotland is a a beacon of socialist hope for the whole world. Because, of course, we've got very different taxation systems and very, very different governments. And these people continue to say to me, yeah, I know you guys you know, pay a lot more in tax than we do here. But these people keep saying, it's amazing because you seem to have a government that's doing things that's making people's lives better. And they seem to think that Scotland is this beacon of hope. And I'm not someone who would ever identify as being a nationalist because I, I, I don't like flag waving and stuff and I don't possess any f- flags and stuff. But I do think that... We're quite fortunate right now where we are in the world. I think things are doing quite okay here. We've seen the stuff south of the border um, with regards to you know, the, the fallout following the, the, the vote to leave the European Union with, with racism and homophobia and stuff. These things, are there's been a spike. That, again, I think has been accelerated slightly by um, Boris Johnson's premiership as well because when you get a Prime Minister who's been racist and homophobic in the past then it makes it very easy for folk to feel validated and to start then taking these attitudes and, and being vocal with them. So I think that it kind of depends where you are in the world. Uh, I, I, as a pessimist, worry a little bit for my eight-year-old. I worry about what we're going to leave her. You know, I worry about automation in the workplace. Yeah. I worry about where do I try and guide her. I, don't want, I want her to follow her own dreams, but I want to try and think, how do I guide her into the world of work? Where is there going to be sustainability for her to be able to build a life and a future for herself and any family she may or may not want to have? So I think that it is a big question and it's something that, you know, I've probably got a different outlook on that from day to day depending on what's on the news and yeah. what I'm learning about. But I would like to think that as human beings, we're getting better, but I don't think we are. I think, yeah. I think the internet and I think social media is perhaps... It's got a lot to answer for. Mm. It's just a microcosm of humanity. We all filters removed and that's something I really don't enjoy, but I think he wants to talk because he's growing on me. <laughs> yeah. He's got a habit of um, going on for much longer and not letting anyone in. <laughs> but uh, no, I, th- I think it depends. I think Liam's right. It depends where you are in the world. I also think it depends who you are um, because there are, there are people in Scotland who are worried and anxious and frightened by what's happened since 2016. I think that 2016 and and kind of for future historians will be looked at as the year that the pendulum swung back um, and I, th- I think you know I've kind of like Liam um, worry quite a bit about the future and, and worry about where society is going but I think that if, if we can realise that social progress sits on a pendulum and that will swing forward sometimes and then eventually it's just going to be too much progress for too many people and it will start swinging back um, and people will crawl out of the woodworks 
one of the things that frustrates me quite a bit <coughs> is this idea that um, you know, Brexit or the rise of Donald Trump or the rise of a more kind of far-right element in Britain has seen this uh, new xenophobia or new racism or, or these, these new people have emerged because they've, they've always been there. Um, they will always be there and at certain points in time and at certain points uh, throughout society's journey, um, they are emboldened, as Liam says, they are given different platforms, the media will platform them at different times and they'll, they'll come back and they'll dress themselves up and they'll, they'll look new and we're seeing that just now with um, you know, the, the kind of rampant rise of media fueled and internet fueled transphobia in Scotland. Scotland as a beacon of hope for LGBT people has fallen into this complete cesspit of transphobia and it's absolutely everywhere but it's the same textbook argument that was used against lesbians, gays and bisexual people um, in the 70s, 80s and 90s. It's the same stuff that we're seeing, just rebranded. So the... Thanks very much for that. The go, Going from the Cumberland against poverty uh, uh, element we first met, then my me and Duggins, if you're listening, Michael and Rose, and Rosa, hello to you both, um, and that, that ill-fated trip, as it turned out to be, we really should have went in with a charity. Um, not just the two of us. <laughs> um, they, they couldn't believe it when we were. See when we were trying to pull in, it was just a French look of a look, a look in French yeah. of what are you doing? Well, just doing for the tin, just doing for the tin, bringing aid. But that was that was scary. Probably the close, one of the closest I've been to death. That was really bad. Cali. Yeah. yeah. Which you said, which you gave, but it was it was very very bad. Very. Yeah, but see, see the thing is, very scary. You're saying you should have maybe teamed up and went in with a charity and stuff. I disagree because that's what attracted us in coming Against Poverty to help you out because it was just a group of humans trying to help other humans yeah. without the need for um, CEOs of big charities getting paid six oh, figure salaries to oh, justify there's a, there's a lot of a lot of charities are, yeah. a lot of charities are for the watching but this was just started on that yeah, yeah. this was just a, this was a couple of guys and a, a few a small group of people who wanted to do good and and do you know something if you talk about random acts of kindness that's on an enormous scale yeah. a, random, a random act of kindness on almost the biggest scale I've ever seen and that's what I really liked about what you were doing then and I think mere power to you for doing it I don't think you should have cozied up with any charities you've done, you done the right thing and it's probably been a huge learning experience oh no it's it certainly wasn't no, and I appreciate you saying that I really really do in that context and then post that uh, post Cali so where were the early seeds um, of Thai what the, the where was the where did the early seeds germinate from, if you like? I mean, I must say for the purpose of the conversation, so Jordan, because I, I, I was, when I, in my research for this, um, I was, I read that in 2016, 90% of LGBT respondents, 90% mm. responded that they felt discrimination while at, while at school. Yeah. Now, I should say you're gay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 90%? Mm-hmm. So, did you face discrimination at school? Yeah, so it was, I, I mean, it was kind of... I suppose how you define discrimination for me it was it was more just a um ever present prejudice that was never really addressed never really tackled uh and, and it was all the subtle things that just kind of left quite a big um message in my head that being gay or being um otherwise lgbt was wrong or was unacceptable and, and it was a lot of the behaviors that came from particularly groups of young boys um, kind of at the later stages of primary school and, th- and throughout my entirety of high school 
um, the use of language that, that people would use, the way that the word gay was used to describe things, um, the kind of targeting and victimisation of people that others thought were gay based on stereotypes and the way boys should be or the way girls should be, um, which has been known as, as just a kind of heap of rubbish that, that a lot of young people buy into. Um, but my, I suppose my own experience at school, I realised I was gay properly, maybe around primary six. Um, before that, knew that I was attracted to men, but didn't really read too much into it. Um, it was the kind of the onset of puberty that that where, where it really kind of um, hit me that that I was, um, for lack of a better word, different from what I had been taught to believe was the norm. And uh, it was at that point that I just started kind of reevaluating the way that we would all use the word gay or words like poof or faggot or dyke. Um, or been um, they, they, they were really kind of common slurs throughout my time at school and it, it started with that just kind of subtle use of language and the fact that it was never challenged and the fact that being gay was just seen as something that was weird or that was wrong or it was it was something that you kind of you would you would joke about with people or you would call people gay as an insult and as I'm realising that I'm gay and going through that environment and that atmosphere in school it, it kind of just had quite a tough impact on me at quite a young age um, quite quickly it did develop into um, throughout first year of high school uh, being bullied because people thought that I was gay and because they kind of viewed me as being different um, and it's just it's just that feeling like uh, uh, maybe some of the people that were listening might be at school or they might be parents of kids that have been bullied and it's that that sick feeling in your stomach that you get like when you go into school and you see people and you know that they're the ones that are just making your life misery ultimately um, and then kind of just in the wider school community um, never learned anything at all about being LGBT didn't learn about any LGBT people um, used to get a lot of messaging about bullying that racism wasn't okay sectarianism wasn't okay but the, there was never any mention of like homophobia or transphobia it learned a lot about people like Martin Luther King or Emmeline Pankhurst never learned anything at all about um, people like Alan Turing or Marsha P. Johnson yeah. um, some of the LGBT communities kind of big iconic figures that that have made a real global impact um, and it was just ultimately I think that feeling of being isolated alone and routinely told and, and everything that happened in school that being LGBT was wrong it was something to be laughed at and it was something to be joked about and, and it's the impact that that then has um, that just kind of caused me to struggle quite a bit through school. So when did Ty um I've got to say, just I was bullied as well. Growing up, mm-hmm. bullying's a horrific thing. Oh, mm-hmm. see, you, see you, see you saying that a bit there when you go into school and you know yeah. you see the ones that are going to give you the hard time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that was no, bad, and it's a feeling you'll never forget. And I think uh, you know, like it is, it really is. And it's a shame because bullying is a phenomenon that has been around probably since schools began um, it's the psychology of group mentalities particularly how young people um, react to other people and, and behave around other people when they are in packs do, do you know I was also bullied at primary school and, and you talk about it when we were working in schools just now how you end up the stomach churning and stuff when you see these people as you mentioned Tony but actually it's not just your stomach your heart churns as well because your heart falls into your stomach when you see these people the folk you know are going to be the perpetrators of the bullying and it really is it's, it's, it's the worst thing in the whole wide world almost for a young, per- oh, for yeah. a young person it probably is the worst thing in the whole wide world being bullied it shapes it can shape as well but yeah. I mean look how it shaped your life it shaped your life to do things like tie mm-hmm. and it really does. Yeah. Shape, it shaped, shaped me in a, in, a, in a few ways, which aren't for this this podcast. But mm. I think, unfortunately, though, that people like Jordan are 
uh, very rare examples of people who have used their bad experiences to make sure others don't go through it. Yeah. And to make sure there's, there's you know, proper real social change that can be tangible. If there was more of that. Mm-hmm. And if there was more of that. that yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, and you know, I think it's a difficult thing to do because, like, I, I mean, probably part of the reason why um, Ty has been as successful as it has been, um, as, you know, you get some people that will criticise and say it's been successful because it's uh, two men that are running it and um, that... <laughs> Uh, you know, that might be true, it might not be true. Though, what, do you, sorry, can I ask, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? Because it's two men? Well, you, you will get some people, um, a minority of people, who will say that Ty's been successful because it's um, a young gay man and a heterosexual man, and people only listen to them and wouldn't listen to, for example, to women mm-hmm. or trans people. Or, right, okay. Um, and I think, you know, I, 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 okay. I think there's a there's potentially a fraction of truth in that and that's unfortunate um but i don't think that that's that's not the reason why ty was successful like we the reason ty was successful is because a we were completely honest up front open books and and we were talking about real things that were affecting people and b we did pull in a lot of other people because we were aware um of the, the i suppose the kind of identity um uh, kind of flaws or barriers that, that that we had, and so we did pull a lot of people in who helped us out and, and got involved in the campaign. Um, but it was also successful because we sacrificed our entire lives to make it successful. Yeah. Um, and which kind of harks me back to my first point is that we have been very open books. I've been very honest about my experience growing up, about feeling suicidal when I was younger. Being like spoke in detail in committee rooms in Parliament about what that experience was like, what I've learned from it, um, what what I think about it in hindsight. Spoke about being bullied, spoke about struggling to come out, spoke about struggling to accept who I was um, in a very candid way and in a way that, will, that that makes other people uncomfortable because people often don't talk about these things that they try and bury down. So when we say it would be great if more people um, would speak up about kind of those traumatic things that have happened to them, it would it would be because it's those stories and it, it's, it's unfortunately um, it is rehashing that trauma which changes things. But it shouldn't be that way. It, it should just be that, you know, people do simply say LGBT inclusive education would be a cracking idea. Can we just get it done rather than, you know, the, the amount of work that I had to go into it for five years to make it happen. Yeah. Um, and LGBT people from all across the country um, kind of really putting their, their hearts out there and, and their stories out there to just try and make that happen. And it was, so was it 20, 2015? It was when you started, Ty started? Mm-hmm. Your first publication was Time for Inclusive Education. It was personal stories. Are these the candid stories of which you're alluding to? Yeah. Can yeah. you remember any? What was what was one of them from the, from that part from that publication? Do you remember? Yeah, there was there was lots of stories and, and something that we found in our work in Scotland, England, Ireland, and in America that, that the experiences of young LGBT people is actually universal. It, it, there's no difference of how a young person is made to feel, and uh, you know. Indiana, I'm just going to get that bloody place out. <laughs> in Indiana, then the way they're made to feel in Kirk and Tullock or in Lambeth in London, it's, it's, the experiences are very, very much the same. But some of the stories on there, there was a, there was a, yeah, a story on there, a young person called Lee Martin, who was a great help to us back then, who wrote about his experience in, in great detail about what he went through and, you know, and actually really outlined exactly the, the way bullying, um, the way it shaped his life and stuff. And it's, it's difficult, it was a difficult publication to put mm-hmm. together. But we felt as though what we had to do at that stage was, well, actually, me and Jordan, our, our initial strategy was that we were going to be puppet masters. We were going to sit behind the curtain. We were going to orchestrate this this campaign, not so much from the shadows, but we wanted to put other people forward. We didn't want to put ourselves forward, not for any reasons, we didn't have any hide or anything, but we just thought we could do this campaign differently, almost have a faceless campaign run um, 
Yeah, run from the shadows, I suppose. There's no other way to put it. Which, ironically, is what a lot of the anti-trans campaigns were doing just oh, now. Right, anyway, yeah. <laughs> we were doing but, it with good intentions. <clears throat> what, what happened was... Why, they, why, so why, would they, why are they doing that from the shadows as such? Because they are... The bigots, yeah. and they don't want to be unmasked. A lot of them, I think, well, some of them are quite happy to be... Oh, it's the anti-trans story. It's a very insidious movement. Yeah, so Whereas what we wanted to do was <clears> try and really have... Um, put stories out there, yeah, put people yeah, out there, yeah, people's experiences. Yeah, now, when we put that document together, it was so we could... You know, present, we presented those. Every MSP in Scotland at the time had one of those delivered to them, so they could read. They could read firsthand, and I think there's some of the people gave us pictures. Mm -hmm. They could see people. They could listen and read their stories. And we wanted to really strike at their hearts because one of the big things about this for me is about when you want to encourage people like myself who don't come from the LGBT community and weren't pre-exposed or disposed to understanding the experiences of young LGBT people, just due to the makeup of your own friend group and family. So it was important, and I felt they were to win hearts and change minds and I thought we felt that that was a really good strategy to go and do that and it worked it worked pretty well in the, at the beginning and um, people putting their stories there and we're eternally grateful to these people a lot of these folk now we don't have much contact with but these people were absolutely pivotal at the beginning and actually played a huge role in delivering what is a world leading yeah. educational policy and quite a few of them actually that, that did submit stories went on to get involved integrally in the campaign and mm -hmm. um, people like Gemma Clark Dean Coyle um, these are people who came into Parliament with us, who gave evidence to politicians, who spoke at round tables, um, came into school, spoke to young people, um, done speeches at teacher training events that were held. Um, so I think a lot of those, particularly young young people who did give um, those stories back in 2016, or 2015 it was, um, back in 2015, um, it, it kind of empowered them to then go on and do a lot more and, and that's, that's one of the really things they? yeah they, they did all feel it was very cathartic yeah, and it is like I, I can kind of attest to that but that was one of the things that I was really proud of at, at the very beginning of the campaign was that we had you know a kind of handful of um, younger people who were very empowered just by the nature of the Thai campaign to then get involved with us and, and, and come into the hearts of power and, and really try and push for this change and they all, as Liam's right, every contribution they made um, kind of kind of played a part in, in getting us to the end. That's, that's an incredible that, achievement, a really an incredible achievement. Do, do you know that's something I encourage young people to do that they ever get in touch with, not just young people, anyone who's struggling is talk to them and say right, right, write down how you feel, write down what you're going through, keep it Keep it there and it's something you can always revisit. And another thing that I've told young people and I've been I've had feedback that's been a very good thing. It sounds really cheesy and really trivial, but write a, a letter to yourself when you're feeling good. Yeah. So that when you're not feeling good, you can go back and read that letter. Write to yourself and tell yourself this is going to blow over, this is going to change, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um and that light's not a train. So this is yeah. something I think the writing process and I've actually someone who, as you know, is a lorry driver and knows someone with any academic ability really. But there's some of the articles and stuff I've been writing, and it really is. It's a really empowering tool, writing. Mm -hmm. And it's something I yes. wish I understood when I was going through education and maybe embraced a little bit more. It really is. It's a really, really great tool. And I think it's something that I would encourage so many people to go and do. It's, it's interesting. You raise that point from just, just from a personal point of view. And people, people close to me are not, you know, not very, don't keep well with mental, mental ill health and so on, um, which tends to, which seems to be just on their eyes as well you know and it's the whole thing about well, people obviously are saying about talking which is of course 100% spawn but someone that I know close to me is advised to, to write right. and and um, and uh, yeah that's that's great advice that write, write do stuff something? down is it? writing stuff down and it's, hers is in a kind of diary format mm -hmm. so just in a kind of day to day but I don't know if she's ever been told about the you know write when you're, write when you're feeling strong as well mm -hmm. not necessarily yeah. when you're down yeah, yeah. because 
I, I mean, I think like it's, I think both of the, thing, the things are important because, of course, talking like the first bit of advice, especially we've um, started the, we piloted actually a mental health workshop in school, and it was really built around giving some of the young people, um, as you're saying, who, who are starting to feel um, some of those kind of anxieties or pressures of you know exams or school life is totally different now with social media and the internet. Everything's twenty four seven. It puts a huge amount of pressure on young people. And what we've been trying to do, um, working with some people, is how can we get a workshop together that just gives them some of the skills that they need to try and manage that better rather than um, you know, waiting until there's a crisis and then putting them on a waiting list for CAMS. So how can we get an early, an early stage to give them the skills that they need that as adults, um, or, or me at least as an adult that I now have and understand how to control my mind and my mental health a bit better. Talking is important, it's the number one bit of advice, but um, that whole writing thing, getting your own thoughts down and trying to build some more resilience in yourself because once you've finished speaking to someone, you inevitably, at the end of the day, you're going home to go to sleep and lie in your bed on your own and you're trapped in your head and you've still got those thoughts so so, so everyone needs to needs to think about well, how can you build your own resilience so that you are able to control that a bit yeah, better cope, coping mechanisms etc yeah. Yeah. because you know the thing about writing is i'm someone who when i have an off day and me and jordan are way too close and spend too much time with each other and we we, we butt heads a lot yeah and i'm never that good at saying this is why i've done that but i'm finding it much easier to write yeah, much easier to write. So yeah, I think that's a, a great tip. So also, you have people are really know what people don't want to open up. If people aren't ready to open up, mm-hmm. writing is very yeah. personal as well. Yeah. Personal, cathartic. I mean, it's, it's very, very good advice. And the two yeah. of you are. It's I mean, it's great to see. Obviously, cliche, but the two of you are chalk and cheese. Where did you meet? I know it's a bit of cliche, chalk and cheese, but you are. Well, we are. We met <coughs> um, after the independence referendum. Jordan, my partner, and Jordan's mum. I've got a kind of a crossover in friend groups. Um, and after the re- independence referendum, when I was hosting public meetings in Cumberland, I used to cover the cost of the speakers and stuff, and I used to have a bucket on the door, and the money I went to the food bank. And on the back of the referendum, I realised that, you know, we have to continue supporting these food banks way beyond an independence campaign. We have to continue to make sure folk are not hungry in Cumberland. Of course, there's political conditions we need to challenge as well, right? But in the immediate time, we need to make sure there's food on people's tables. And after that referendum, I think it was November, I was holding a... I think I called it Feed a Family at Christmas event, and it was literally what it says in the tin, raise money to put Christmas dinners on tables via the food bank. Um, and Jordan had come along to it, out of the blue. Um, he was a kind of 19-year-old student, and I'm a 36-year-old petrol tanker driver. And it was interesting that after the minute me and Jordan met, it felt as if there was f- something very fatey. Yep. And, you know, I'll, I'll t- this is dead, dead corny. Is this the Titanic? He, he, walk, he walked in to this bar, uh, the Mallard, which is there's no opening anywhere. He walked into the Mallard at exactly the time that I'd left a conversation and spun around, and this guy walks in the door. I hadn't met at this point, and we kind of lock on. But Jordan, we start chatting. And we ended up sitting that night, and we were chatting, 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 chatting. And it turned out that we were very similar. We had a lot of very different, but very similar, if you get yep. what I mean. We had politically, we were very much in line. We were then, Jordan's moved way the same now, <laughs> but we were very much in line politically. <laughs> we were both fans or supporters and, and advocates for Scottish independence and uh, building a better future for everybody here. And it turned out that there was just something, there was, there was a, something, a switch flicked when a 36 year old, a 19 year old, a heterosexual tanker driver, a gay student, we were the odd couple, but for some reason there was just a real chemistry. Um, and as time moved on, we had a, a couple of glasses of wine in my house one night, 
and that's when John, I knew Jordan was gay. My my partner had already told me, but it's not something I didn't. Are you gay, mate? It doesn't matter to me. Um, and one night he was talking about his experience at school, um, and when he told me his story and where it took him, it ruined me. It ruined me. I had to go for a wee cry. I got up to the bathroom and had a wee greet. Um, but I came back down the stairs and. I, I seem to develop my confidence from an independence referendum defeat that let me, left me crying for about three days. I was gutted after that. No, but do you know, Tony, I felt as if they came that close to yeah. changing the world, right? And I, I took a confidence from that that I probably shouldn't have, but I did believe that we could still go and change the world. So I had all this confidence and he's telling me his story and at the same time my wee girl's only three and I'm thinking, hang on, is his experience ever going to be acceptable for my wee girl? Of course it's not. And at that point we decided we were going to go and do something about this. We didn't know what we were going to do, but we decided then and there we were going to go and do something about it. Then, you know, fast forward to the middle of 2015 and we were ready to launch the campaign, having done some groundwork and speaking to proper activists and stuff in Glasgow. Uh, and one of the most interesting aspects to that was that, you know, we literally had no idea what we were doing. We just knew we were going to have a campaign and we were going to change the world. And we sat down with these guys who have been political activists for 25 years in Glasgow and were saying, can you give some tips as to how to run a campaign? And one of the first things this, this boy said was, who's going to fund it? And I looked across the table and I said to him, what are you talking about, who's going to fund it? Well, who's going to put the money up? And I said to him, what do we need money for? He went, well, you need printing, you need travel, you need... We didn't even realise we needed money yeah. to launch a campaign. So from that grounding and that basis, we then went and delivered that policy we've already spoken about that should be heralded across the world. And that just goes to show people that you don't have to be clued up. We didn't even know how education worked because I wasn't educated under the curriculum for excellence and he was busy doing his university stuff and had no real steer on how Scottish education worked and yet we could then go and become the architects of this policy. It just goes to show you that if you put your mind to something and you believe in it, then yeah. you care enough that you can go and do anything in this yeah, world. Definitely. And that's something that I maybe wouldn't have said in 2012-13 before that referendum, but something kind of lit a, lit a fire in my belly then. And fortunately now in 2020 it's, it's shown no signs of abating, and I hope that just continues on like that. Yeah. So it really was, it was from it was from rags to rags. Yeah, yeah. A lot of success in the middle. Of course. Because we've still got nothing, we've still not got a pot to urinate in at the moment. Yeah. So it really has been quite a, a, a roller coaster journey. And on that way, as I said already, we've been to places like America, Ireland, London, on and off lots of times. And we've now got a partnership with Purdue University in Indiana where we're recording data from the young people in the schools when we do our, um, they call them interventions. Yeah. I prefer to call them sessions. Oh yeah, it's an, it's an education an intervention. intervention. That's yeah. what they're Interesting to work choice. Yeah, and um, we're gathering data and it's, it's all shown up very, very positively. But that's shown the immediate impact. Once the programme of LGBT inclusive education is properly implemented and these sessions are taking place all the time, the curriculums have been changed and updated in schools and teachers have been trained, then once we can look at this and show a longitudinal change in attitudes, then that's when you've won, that's when the campaign has actually won because you don't win getting the political victory. You win when there's changes in statistics that governments are gathering about how people's experiences in life are. Yeah. LGBT people's experiences the management by fact yes yeah. that's, and that's why we've always been really big on outcomes anytime we do a session anywhere we gather data all the time and it's all done digitally where people go on devices and they they, they, they don't rate their sessions but they answer questions before and after as set by the university um, and once we can show that longitudinal change in attitude in society then the university over in America believe that the world's the oyster for that type of model yeah. not particularly for because we can't just roll into Russia and tell them we're going to start having LGBT inclusive education of course but any campaign that wants to force social change 
that model, the model that Ty used and still uses, it's instantly transferable to so many different to different, to different causes. So that's really exciting. That yeah, that's that very exciting. Just something I can probably announce because tonight the fly the flyers going out. Um, if you've not done it yet, ek, get it finished for after this interview. Uh, only can love you. Finish it when you can. But um, yeah, we're going to do it once a quarter now. Edgy Camus is going to start giving something back as well and start doing like when we all first met. Just collecting, doing. I'm going to do a clothes and food collection up at the, up at the, um, just up at the exact same place where we all met, yeah. mm-hmm. Cumberland Town Centre. Just once a quarter. Mm-hmm. So I think it's good to give something back because I, I, it dawned on me recently. With regards Edgy Camus, you know, kids can't, kids parents can't. Never mind, not being able to afford an hour of tuition. Can't afford put you know food on the table. Do you know what I mean? So you've got to give. I think you've got to give something back, and it's so yeah. We'll be doing that once a quarter. So good stuff. Clothes, a clothes and food drive. Um, you were what you won Taiwan. Uh, did you just go? I think you were at this night, the twenty seventeen icon, the icon awards charity of the year. Yeah, some alcohol was taken. <laughs> no, well, no, 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 no. So, so basically, right. So the icon awards was uh, was Scotland's LGBT awards ceremony. Was how they were pitching themselves, right? And. Um, just a kind of word of advice for anyone at all who is in business or in the third sector is that most award ceremonies like that, if they're run by marketing companies or if they're run like they're money makers, basically. Yeah. So you'll get nominations. It's extremely easy to be nominated for them. People just like nominate themselves if they want um, and they fire out random nominations and then they'll ask you to pay money to go. So the year that so we had known of the Icon Awards, there was loads of different issues with them. Um, Anyway, um, we were nominated the first year, never went because they wanted us to pay like £200 to go. We said nope. Um, the second year we got nominated um, for two awards and uh, a friend of ours who's um, a member of our board, um, the human rights lawyer Amar Amwar, um, was involved with the Icon Awards as a judge and he had convinced them to uh, um, let the nominees attend for free um, and have an extra ticket. So that year we went, we won both awards. And to give some prize money out. And to give prize money out to the winners. So that year we went, we won both awards, we got a £1,000 donation um, as, as a prize. Um, the following year we get nominated again and so did a young person that works with us, um, Dean. And, you know, Dean, like, he at the time was, um, uh, he's a a young trans person, he was skinny at the time, unemployed, um, when he was coming to do work for Ty, um, like, we, you know, we we were often kind of helping him out. So he was nominated, was really excited about it, and we all got emails, all the nominees, um, that... Archive, like, and it was going to cost like £90 per person to go to the award so then like you know obviously Dean couldn't afford that um, we weren't going anyway we had written it off as soon as that came out and then I think we were just kind of sitting in yours and just really, like, really quite angry about it and Liam had fired out a tweet saying you know like um, withdraw no, no 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 that's wrong that's wrong I contacted him directly first privately I didn't go straight to Twitter to call people out I contacted him privately okay because I was in a, <laughs> I was in a category um with Nicola Sturgeon and Annie Lennox, a singer, I was competing against her. I was never going to win anyway in my category. But what I what, couldn't... what, uh, what bedfellows to be in with? Annie <laughs> Lennox that's so that's, bad, a, that's a good claim of fame. But whether it's there's and that's a good claim of fame that it's not bad. Um, but what happened was I then contacted organisers privately and said, look, I don't think this is appropriate that you're charging people money. It wasn't charging event for for nominees last year. Blah 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 blah. Can you reconsider? And to my astonishment. They come back and said, no, we'll be charging people because it makes the event more inclusive. Yeah, yeah okay. So we, we charge people to come to an event in order to make it more inclusive. I'm sorry, that makes it exclusive because if people can't yeah. afford to go, 
Yeah, of course, yeah. And what then happened was, because they were a, bit, a little bit belligerent with me, I then, I then did take to Twitter and I called him out there and I tagged Danny Lennox and Nicola Sturgeon, quoted him in a tweet and said, I'll be interested to find out if these people are also paying for their tickets, these nominees, because of course they won't be. Um, we knew the year before all the politicians had got their tickets for free and it turned out to be a bit of a mudslinging contest where the organisers of Icon um, pretty much said to me, how dare you, we gave you a £1,000 last year. So then it was open warfare, Amar Anwar getting involved and before we knew it, within 24 hours, all the organisers all resigned from this icon. Oh, did they? Yes. I then went on a wild goose chase to hunt them down to give them their £1,000 back. Right. So at that time, Ty had £2,000 in the bank. And I withdrew the £1,000 and went and delivered it to their office, um, got a receipt, of course, and they handed them their money back. And the, the whole event collapsed and crumbled, and it's, it's been put to bed now. It doesn't, it doesn't operate anymore. Thankfully. And I think, like, see, what just surprised me about that yeah. whole episode was how easily manipulated a lot of people actually were because I don't know if it taps in I, I, don't, I don't know what it taps into for me I think it taps into one of numerous things it either taps into people's ego yeah, I think, because I think they're being is. nominated for awards and so they're quite happy to overlook the fact that actually you're being exploited here because yeah. you're you're paying to go and pick up a crappy wee bit of glass that's got your name engraved in it um, you buy one for two for the name I, yeah. um, it either taps into that or it taps into the fact that um, a lot of this was kind of targeted at the business and third sectors and the third sector in particular um, for a lot and, and, and I've certainly seen this in the five years we've been working in this area now um, in the third sector there are a lot of things like that where it is just expected that oh we paid like £500 to go to a conference or £300 to go to this thing or £700 to that thing um, and, and there's, a, there's just a lot of money being circulated and made in the third sector um, that is certainly not a homogenous thing um, especially not on things like frontline services or organisations that provide things for free um, and in the business sector of course um, people are used to just paying because they can get awards that then support and help their business yeah. so I, I think like the whole idea of award ceremonies um, like that is very manipulative because it taps into those vulnerabilities of uh, third sector that um, charities want to get these awards because it helps them with funding applications businesses want them because it helps them with their business um, and people want them because yeah, it helps them satisfy their ego because yeah. it gives them validation yeah. um, and it was just <clears> the whole thing was just I, it was actually like one of the things that I imagine like is up there on the proud list of like well good like I, I'm we're, like we're really sorry that we kind of ruined everyone's party and no one got to go out and get their free like cheap bottle of champagne that was sitting on the table but at least people aren't going to be yeah. manipulated. It happens all the it happens all the time in business. It really really does um, with the other business I'm involved in. It is, t- it is, a, it is an exploitation. It is exploitation. It's talking about um, with regards to. I've got mm-hmm. who, biggest when it, when you were pushing for the 2018 the monumental day in 2018 biggest source of opposition and how did you handle it who was the ones that were Catholic Church no Catholic Church were brilliant yeah. were they great mm-hmm. well more the Cat Scottish Catholic Education Service what we done was when we campaigned Jordan's finest moment in life was he came up with an idea in the the, the shallow pool in the West Hotel. <laughs> yeah, I know. All, all of hotels are available. West yeah. really good. And although the lockers don't work, no, ever. most no. of them don't. And um, Jordan came up with the, the concept of let's have a campaign pledge. But you know, you see politicians all the time holding up boards. I support X, Y, and Z, but we'll do zero. Yeah. But we decided. He decided we were going to have a pledge, a five-point pledge, calling for five different things, but ultimately calling for legislation. So we made it clear to the politicians in the parliament, if you sign this pledge, you're committing to voting for legislation to make this happen. So what happened was we, uh, ironically, 
is independence campaigners, activists, people who were inspired by the independence referendum, we ended up with a bigger majority in the Scottish Parliament for LGBT inclusive education than the government have for another referendum. Right, okay. Ironic, very, very ironic. But that's because obviously we went for cross-party support and every party um, in that, that parliament supported what we were trying to do. And actually, every political party in 2016... 2016 so what happened it's then? A, it's a clever, good strategy, clever strategy. Very clever strategy. Mm-hmm. There's very not enough cross-party... Do you think of it? Not enough cross-party stuff, whether in this... Well, I don't know, maybe certainly the United Kingdom Parliament, that's been shown recently. You know, mm-hmm. not, not enough cross-party work. No, no and, 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 and if you can whip the parties around an issue, then it makes it much easier to get that. To get something done. And it goes back to yeah. what... Like, when we tell these stories that like for people listening it sounds really simple you made up a five point pledge and people just signed it like that was a lot of graft a lot of hard work a lot of time on days off of work where we would spend like two or three days a week in the parliament and they're constantly for entire days um, not seeing our families um, not not being able to see our friends or because we were for two or three months like in and out of that parliament oh, yeah, constantly time, yeah. um, meetings constantly overcoming things constantly kind of dealing with um, new, uh, media inquiries or social media and it was back to what I'm saying at the beginning like if people want to know why Ty was successful that's why um, because of the amount of sacrifice that was yeah. made to actually unpaid on your free time and, still um, and it's still being made to actually go and get stuff done in a way that frankly a lot of other people who, for whom it is their job to do that, we, we just we would not have put the same amount of graft into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, like, where what what was good about the pledge and getting the majority was that it then meant that it kind of forced conversations with a lot of other education stakeholders, which might have been where you were where going. Where I was going to go, yeah. But what happened was, once we were very public about the pledge with our website, with a link on our website to the pledge, and there was photographs and of everybody. Sorry, interrupting, but then it's grown all the time. I mean, by this, mm-hmm. how much. Not so much followers, but how much backing did you have it, and how were you building support? We were we were building support by using connections, trade union connections, by um, reaching out to people. We always reached out, being everywhere basically. Yeah, because like, like, we were at the opening an envelope. If there's somebody yeah. was there that we could get there, we were uh, everywhere. Um, going to as many conferences, doing as many speeches, doing as many public events. Um, being at Pride, doing as like just like the more that people got to recognise the faces and the more that people recognised that Rainbow School Tie logo, which is um, the better. And very, very recognisable. Yeah. I'm not a brand, but very recognisable. That's a brand, yeah. That's a brand, Julie, yeah. Who looks after the social media? Both of us. Both of you. And then, sorry to stop you in your tracks, you were saying there, but then. Once we got that majority, we became very serious players because we were a real problem for the government. Yeah. So, what then happened was we were. Uh, we had a meeting with a, a special advisor um, from a very senior politician and they asked us what do you want to do now and we said right away because me, me and Jordan have been all about consensual work about pulling everybody together we don't know everything that's one of I think our biggest strengths we know our weaknesses and we go and, we go and get the people that can um, and yeah. we, we make our weaknesses our strengths almost so what happened was we wanted to have a consensual working group where all stakeholders in education could be there, including the Scottish Catholic Education Service, because something that was levelled as or suggested to us early-ish on in the campaign was that what, what you want to give up. And we said, sorry, 
someone says, a politician, well-known politician, I won't name him, what are you willing to give up? And I says, I don't understand the question. He says, well, if it comes down to a choice between getting this done in non-denominational schools and leaving Catholic schools alone, would, would you settle for that? I says, absolutely not. No yeah. way, we will not leave Catholic LGBT learners behind. No way. So that was always a red line for us. So we wanted to pull SCES, LGBT youth, Stonewall, the EIS, the the people from the government, of course, the Learning Directorate, um, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, um, the National Parent Forum for Scotland, everybody that had any stake in education was invited to be part of this working group, and they all came along. And what happened was, we very quickly, we had already won the political debate. There was no debate to be had anymore about this. This yeah. was the right thing to do. This had to be done, and we were going to do it. And it was the job of that working group to be innovative, to come up with the ways of making it happen. And it was also the responsibility of that working group to be brave, by the way, because, as, you know, as your question alludes to, there are people that are not overly enamoured with this kind of thing. But the big surprise was we thought, of course, that SCEDS would have been the problem, and they were absolutely fabulous. Brilliant to work with. We've got a really, really strong working relationship with the Scottish Catholic Education Service, and we hope that continues on. The main opposition to us was actually from really real fringe individuals from um, from Christian faiths, pretty much. I won't even name any of them because they don't deserve the recognition on your excellent podcast, Tony. <laughs> um, and actually, the, the main the, the opposition amounted to some YouTube videos, a couple of blogs, some podcasts where they kind of ripped off their campaign logo, their campaign mantras and kind of all that stuff and they twisted it. Um, and writing letters, of course, to the government asking to be on the working group and... They were, they were treated with the, the mm. disdain that they, they really deserve these people, so there was actually no real opposition. No, no there wasn't like massive concerted or organised opposition. Um, and, and, and like that shows that shows progress and it's, that returns to progress at the start. Because if you tried to do it twenty years ago, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think how you worked the campaign though as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Do what? Yeah, because the, the thing is, Tony. It, again, of course, this is an unusual campaign because you've got a heterosexual man. Um, leading it with, with a young gay man and nobody could ever level the accusations at us about yep. the gay agenda Yeah. nobody could ever start the chat about what about the children because well, I'm a parent and I've got a vested interest in my child's future and all the children in Scotland's futures so we kind of managed to eliminate some of the usual um, not slurs, the, the usual obstacles <laughs> the usual obstacles we yep. can circumnavigate a lot of them and what we managed to do is our local MP, who I know you've had on your podcast before, yeah, he was the biggest. Congratulations on your victory, Stuart. Increased his majority; he's back up to nineteen thousand, I yeah. believe. And one of the things was that he comes from a legal background, Stuart. And um, we had a meeting with him to see if we could get him on board because we ended up with a majority of Scottish MPs as well back time. Um, and he grilled us, Costa Coffee and Cumberland, Road, and he grilled us, and he grilled us, and actually he gave me the biggest confidence boost in that whole campaign because he asked us so many different questions, as any good politician should before he backs a campaign, by the way. And we were able to answer every single one of these questions and he then says, yep, I'm happy to endorse this. That was a huge moment for me. But what we managed to do was that when we and Jordan were going into different environments, we could always talk to different parts of the room. Yep. So let's just say, for instance, we had to do talks at the Parent Forum conference. Which we did, yeah. Now Jordan can talk about his experience 
and I can talk about my responsibility and their responsibility as parents to make sure their children do not experience what he experienced. Mm. I said covering, covering, covering all the angles. Yeah. And yeah. It, made it, it made it almost it's a feel easy. <coughs> if the dominoes feel quite easy because we had that dynamic. But Jordan's grown again. Yeah, <laughs> and I think also when it comes to opposition, like the, one of the things that kind of I'm pleased about and continue to be pleased about because not necessarily opposition, but I think with the big. Um, uh, as we touched on earlier, the big kind of media fuel trans panic that's going on just now. Um, a, a, a few more people on the internet, a few more random Twitter accounts are starting to um, kind of move towards us because we are an LGBT organisation, we do um, LGBT work. Um, we also ironically touch on, um, do, do, do a lot of work on gender stereotypes in primary schools, um, which a lot of these kind of anti-trans people um, oh, it's, you know, it's just so complex. It's probably not even worth getting into. But what what is good about the opposition, um, the small opposition, is that it's always so conspiratorial. Like it is literally just totally made up stuff, um, because there is nothing that we are doing anywhere in a school, in public, at government level, that is really that, 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 that is controversial you know like it's some, we, we're talking about prejudice we're talking about making young people more aware of um, Scottish British and global history when it comes to the LGBT community and we're talking about fairness and equity in schools that is literally it. like that, that is the start and stop of our work we're talking about eliminating stereotypes we're talking about eliminating bullying behaviours before they arise um, so these people that kind of work um, or kind of go and try and foster opposition to us they literally just sit on the internet and make up lies so they say things like I'm not even going to repeat what they say actually but it is routine um, made up stuff that, that I actually don't know where they get it from and see for as long as the opposition continues to be like that where people are literally just making up lies and some poor souls are believing it um, if they are believing it that's fine yeah. because it, because you can handle opposition like that because it's rubbish and the, and, and the thing with people who um, have you know kind of maybe put out random tweets and lied about us they never contact us we never had emails they never ever get in touch with us they often um, don't even tag tie they, they just often, they often name don't us tag they, us. Don't they just name us um, and they'll get sent to us and people will be like oh, have you seen this and it's like I'm like, I literally don't care I think I'm not interested because they don't come to us if people had any genuine concerns they would have got in touch with us we've been doing this for five years now not a single parent will complaint in a school not a single complaint from a teacher not a single complaint from a young person um, there is not as much Kind of it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It, it, it is, and, and, and you know, like there is not as much, um, there is nowhere near the level of panic around LGBT um, education than some people would be led to believe by some of these people online and by a media that unfortunately um, still knows that if they attack the LGBT community, they'll get clicks and they'll get comments. Mm-hmm. Kind of drawing it to, the, to a close now, it's been brilliant. Um, I, was, I was looking at some of your supporters. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, Jeremy Corbyn, mm-hmm. and Emma Thompson mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. She's class. She who's is. The most, who's the most famous person you've met through the campaign? You'd have, you'd have met them all through the parliament, wouldn't you? Never met Emma Thompson mm-hmm. yet, but I think she's um, one of the guy that does a secondary teacher training. Johnny Post Campbell's been married this, getting married this year. I think Emma Thompson's perhaps going to his wedding. Oh, really? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think is, she, she, is she Scottish? No, she's English. Oh, she? um, but she's oh, a course. good left winger and she's, yeah, oh, she's okay. getting good values and stuff. Um, the most famous person that we have met thus far would have to be Jeremy Corbyn, probably. I was going to say I, Nicola Sturgeon. <laughs> yeah, I think in the UK. I'm saying that Nicola Sturgeon's probably up there. Jeremy Corbyn, I, I, UK I wide. I mean, I would say that Nicola's probably a lot better, well known than Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, yeah. I like Jeremy, but he's not the best. Yeah, cool. And <laughs> yeah, I know this might seem a wee bit obvious, and like, but after the defeat, I kind of there that recent defeat, I kind of realised there was too many, there was too many holes from him. It was just not. 
wasn't he strong enough? No, I do know in the bit he's positioning Brexit was too flimsy, for example, that yeah, it was um, do, you know, do you know something as well, see on Nicola Sturgeon, um as a politician, um throughout her kind of, she she supported Ty quite early on. I think two thousand and sixteen was the first time she publicly spoke about it. So I think less than a year um after Ty had started. And she nailed her cars to the mask straight away, said that she supported the campaign and she actually became um, during a debate or something in the Scottish Parliament about Ty, um, Nicola had spoken about homophobic bullying in schools and how she, how she supported Ty and how she, um, she supported LGBT education. She became the first ever First Minister of Scotland to actually speak about homophobic bullying publicly. Um, and UK level was um, I mean, I'm not sure, but we, I mean, we know for certain about like, yeah, the first yeah, minister. Sure. But um, so, so things that, and, and ever since then, you know, like she's participated in documentaries and spoke about Ty. Um, she, she, she's just, she's just been really supportive, and I think she that genuinely, I, I think she genuinely does, um, you know, support the work and want to see it thrive. And she's been. Um, yeah, she's just a pretty good first minister. In my opinion, as a, as a young gay man in Scotland, I'm, I'm quite pleased that going right, taking this full circle, given the geopolitical context just now, that I'm, I'm quite kind of happy that I do live in a country where we have a first minister yeah. um, and a government who are prepared to you know speak up and speak out in support of LGBT. Because Nicola has spoken up in support of Thai, but she's also been very vocal about GRA and supporting yeah. trans rights too. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a lot, one of you said, according to your Wikipedia page, that you would. You will no longer be required. Well, in terms of, you know, when's Ty finished? I suppose um, was was what I was looking into. Mm-hmm. And when he said, "Until we live in a society where we are no longer required," yeah. what does that society look like, and when will that be? Well, that society looks like a place where all young people can go to school, all LGBT young people can go to school and feel unthreatened and feel confident and see themselves reflected in their education, because of course no young person can be expected to go to school and flourish and become someone who's healthy, fit and ready for the, the modern world when their identity is hidden from their education. That's just not a good place to start for anybody. The world that we need to leave behind before we can wrap up Thai is a place where there's no LGBT phobic bullying. We need to make sure that there's no derogatory use of language and we need to make sure terms like that so gay is a thing of the past because that, that, that term didn't exist when I was at school. But my youngest brother is 20 years younger than me edit that bit out <laughs> and he used that term all the time so that's something that kind of manifests itself and it became a, that, that's so gay so if, if I'm at school and, twi- and it's Disney happening 20 years later he's at school and that's the chat then it's been created by society so we can uncreate it we can take it away and we can change that um, for me I've been doing some research because we are now trying to secure funding from the Scottish Government to make sure we've got a full time presence in schools we initially started doing work in secondary schools but now we've kind of Di- not digressed, we've diversified and we're yep. doing work in primary schools as well, tackling uh, gender stereotypes and homophobic attitudes at that, that sort of age there, which is vitally important. Obviously in a, an ageing stage sensitive way and it's been very popular so far with the teachers and I think that the research shows that you need to have a, a concerted effort of approximately 10 years to change a culture and the, the, the evidence that I was looking at was the knife crime in Glasgow. Yeah. The, there was a concerted approach for over 10 years and what this individual was saying in Radio Scotland was that if you're going to change a culture you do need to work hard at it and invest in it and support it for at least 10 years. So what we have said to the people we work with at the Scottish Government is that we believe that if we are able to be supported for a school life, which is 13 years, so from primary one yep. right through to let's say the people that stay on AS6, if we can capture 
13 years of school life and through education we can eradicate homophobia from those young people we change everything that comes after that yeah so we think that if we're able to be around for 10 to 13 years whether that's still me and him at the helm probably not maybe I don't who knows but this project this work has to at least be that kind of length and then of course after that we need to make sure it's still topped up because things are changing. We're living in an ever-changing world and the work still has to go on. And we were at an event last year in Edinburgh, an education event, and, and a, a woman there had said to us, surely um, if societal attitudes are getting better, there's no really any need for LGBT inclusive education. And I said, well, why are we still uh, doing anti-racist education? Because yeah. racism is much better in Scotland than it used to be. Yeah. Um, but we're still doing that we still maintain that because of course we've got to do that to keep those standards high so we think initially 10 to 13 years to make a real culture change I think for me as well it's it's when it's ultimately when see the society that some of us think that we live in yeah. where um, people don't have an issue with LGBT people and people are into RuPaul's Drag Race and see that type of society see when that is reflected in our schools and our corridors then that's when I'm happy to walk away when there is no more um, as Liam said that that use of derogatory language, no more prejudice based bullying and no more enforcement of gender stereotypes on LGBT people and also on young young girls in schools as well um, and, 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 and young boys that when, when we can move away from that stubborn presence of those yeah. types of attitudes and behaviours then ties finished, ties done. Yeah. And on that note gentlemen I just want to thank you very much for, for uh, coming down and an absolute pleasure and um, no thank you very much for your time thank you you cheers Cheers, thank you it's Jordan cheers thank you NG Camus interview aims to inspire motivate the youth of today for the days of tomorrow